Second reading this morning also from Matthew comes later on in chapter 20. And Jesus is with the disciples. And he has been talking about what is to come next and this is what happens. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons and kneeling before him she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is, to those, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the other ten heard it, they were angry with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Gracious God, we pray that you might use these two readings to open us up to what you would have us hear this morning, that we might respond to the invitation you bring us in Christ, and that we might look upon this Advent season with fresh eyes, and new energy. Come, we pray. Speak, we pray. Help us hear, we pray. Amen. 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I quote often, once asked this really good question. He asked, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? That's a good question. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? It immediately launches me and probably you into thinking about, well, what does it look like to celebrate Christmas correctly? How do we do that correctly? What must I do? Is there a certain posture I must take? Is there a practice that I need to adopt and put on my list that I can check off? Just tell me what it is. What do I do? in order to get it right. And that's what we want, after all. To get it right. To get faith right. To get Christmas right. To get it right. That's what we've always wanted. We see that attempt to get it right in both of our readings. That's the connection between the two, if you were wondering. The both, both readings are trying to get it right. John the Baptist starts off by saying, let me tell you about the one who is coming. 
one more powerful than I, I'm going to try and get it right. He's going to come and clear out the riffraff. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and burn the chaff. And he's going to baptize with fire. I've got it right. The only problem is, in the very next paragraph, when Jesus actually does appear, he doesn't do any of those things. He comes in quietly instead and actually asks John to baptize him. He does the opposite of what they expected. John didn't quite get it right. Later on in our second reading, the disciples appear to be thinking that they've already gotten it right, and so they are looking for their prize. So after all, why we want to get it right, isn't it? We want our prize at the end. We want our A on our Christmas morning report card. They seem like they've already feel like they've already gotten it right, and so they're asking about the prize. They send mom in. Send mom in. She'll, she'll vouch for us, you know. We want to sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom of heaven. That's what they're thinking. And then they start to get into this squabble again about who is the greatest, what their status will be. Like the prodigal son kind of asking for the inheritance early. They're asking for their prize. They're talking about their prize because we've gotten it right and Jesus will have none of it. None of it. Well, he goes along with them for a little bit. But then he sits them down and says, whoever wishes to be greatest must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be your slave. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. They didn't quite get it right. We do it too, you know. We're doing it right now. Even as I read these stories, we're sitting here thinking to ourselves, what do I need to take from this so that I can get it right? What do I need to add to my checklist so that I can check it off, make sure I get it right? After all, we want to get it right, get faith right, get Christmas right. Does Jesus want us to serve more? Is that we write that down, serve more. As if what Jesus is doing in this story is giving us a formula for our faith so that we can get it right. You think that's what Jesus is doing? Giving us some kind of road map? We just follow it? I'm going to suggest to you that that's not what he's doing. I'm going to suggest that he's not giving us a road map to follow so that we can get it right, but instead Jesus is offering us a life to embrace. And that is something entirely different. With a road map, we just check off the places we go along the road. With a, with a formula, we just check off the things we've, we've gotten to to come out with the solution at the end. Those are, those are paths that that have success and failure rates, Jesus is not giving us that. He's giving us a life to embrace. And life involves complexities and tensions and struggles and, and things that go together that don't seem to go together. That's part of what life is about. Life involves paradox. 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. A servant ruler, it's a paradox. Holding two things together that don't seem to go together, and the invitation is to embrace that kind of life. Parker Palmer talks about paradox in this way. He says, with a paradox, opposites do not negate each other, but instead need each other for their health. Much like we need to be able to both breathe in and breathe out. They are complementary. They go together, and yet they sometimes seem opposite. But, he goes on to say, because we live in a culture that prefers the ease of either or rather than the complexities of both and, we really have a hard time holding opposites together. From a very early age, we are taught to look on the outside world, things you can measure, keep things separate, either or, not both and. We're taught from elementary school all the way to grad school very little about the inner life. We're taught very little on how to reflect on what's going on in here, what God might be doing in here with all the tension and the complexities that we want to avoid most of the time because that's what we often think is the right way to go. But here, in fact, Jesus is inviting us into that very life to embrace the complexities the tensions, the paradoxes, those things that seem opposite to one another and yet somehow come together, inviting us into that kind of life. You know, all I really want for you this Advent is for you to be able to embrace life as best you can. That's what I want. That's, that's my prayer that you can embrace life as best you can with all the complexities and all the struggles and all the tensions and all the things that don't seem to go together and yet somehow do because I believe that it is in those things, the opposites that come together, where God shows up most often and most clearly. When you can embrace that, you can entertain the notion that life and death actually belong together, that the manger and the cross actually belong together, you will be able to see God more often, I think, and more clearly. God showing up in the most unexpected of places and in the most unexpected of people. <clears throat> Years ago when I was in college, I, used, I worked as a waiter to help pay for my education. And you could do that back then. You could actually pay for your education being a waiter. You can't do that anymore. But I'd wait tables and <clears throat> I will never forget my boss. It's the hardest boss I've, person I've ever worked for in my entire life. Clay was his name. Clay was a tyrant. I mean no give, zero. And he never complimented you on anything. 
I mean, we would try to go above and beyond, and if you did what your job was supposed to do and you did it well, well, then you don't deserve praise for that. That's the way you're supposed to do it. Just do it. But if you did something wrong, boy, let me tell you, he came down on you like nobody I have ever seen. We lived in constant fear of the wrath of clay. (laughs) I remember two days, specific days, in my time working for him. The first one is when, when I overslept. And when I say I overslept, I mean I slept through my entire shift. I slept through my alarm. I slept through the phone calls of them trying to find out if I'm coming or not. I slept through the whole, I got a good sleep. And when I woke up and realized what had happened, I, of course, immediately called, excuse me, and Clay answered the phone. I didn't even let him say anything. As soon as he said, you know, hello, I, you know, or named the name of the restaurant and all that, I said, it's Andy, I'm on my way, click. I wasn't even going to hear what he had to tell me. And I broke a couple of traffic laws getting there and walked in the door and there he is and he has this smirk on his face and he looks right at me and he says, today you are mine. And I mean, for the next three to four hours, he has me with scrub brushes and scrubbing brooms and cleansers, and I'm cleaning out corners of that place that hadn't seen the light of day in years, and sweeping off carpets, and I'll do it, and he'd come and say, that's not good enough, you need to do it again, and then he walked out while I was scrubbing a thing, and he said, I don't think you understand I want to see sweat dripping from your nose. Well, I doubled up my efforts, and sure enough, next time he came, I had sweat dripping off the end of my nose. I'll never forget that day because I just knew that I'd lost all possibility of any praise from him ever, which brings me to the second day. It was my last shift before I graduated and moved back to Dallas from Austin. And I closed out, you know, as the end of the day, and it was a a lunch shift was my last one, and I closed out and said goodbye to all the people I work with, went in to do all the closing stuff with the office and the money and all that, and Clay was in there, and and we we settled all that up, and I said thank you for everything. And, And he stopped, and he took me by the hand, And he looked at me and he said, if you ever need anything, ever, no matter what it is, you give me a call and I'll do anything I can to help you. I was stunned. All of a sudden, in one fleeting moment, He let a, set aside all the overbearing parts of himself and became a whole person. Two things that did not seem to go together, this tyrant 
became a servant. I think that's what it means to look at the manger. We look at the manger in Advent and, and we have this expectation of, of one who will come and rule from on high. We can't get away from it. It's just embedded in us. And yet what we get is someone instead who serves from down low invites us into the fullness of life with all its complexities and tensions and struggles because perhaps that's where we might see God most clearly. Do me a favor this year, would you? Stop trying to get Christmas right. Stop trying to get an A on your Christmas morning report card. And in the silent moments, whenever you have them, look inside yourself and invite Christ to come. The one who rules by serving. Who will celebrate Christmas correctly this year? The one who does that. Let it be us. Amen.